This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Insiders. Back to you. I'm David Spears. The PM's had a pretty successful few days in the Pacific, a hug with his counterpart from the Solomons, some support for his position on climate change and some hope the Pacific won't fall under the influence of China any further. Anthony Albanese returns home, though, to his first serious political challenge as Prime Minister. The demands to reinstate pandemic leave payments are growing louder. State leaders, union leaders, even one of his own backbenchers are calling for the PM to reverse course and act before this latest COVID wave gets any worse. To guide us through the choppy international and domestic waters and to help answer your questions. I'm joined by the ABC's Melissa Clark in Canberra and Stephen Jedgetts in Fiji at the, uh, well, the tail end of the Pacific Islands Forum. Welcome to you both. Thanks, David. Would much rather be in Fiji than Canberra right now. <laughs> I know. Well, Stephen, I, look, I know Good you've job. been working your butt off over there in Fiji. <laughs> Every time I look at uh, the TV or turn on the radio, you are, you are giving a concise and insightful update on the goings on there. And I, I do really appreciate you fitting this in. But tell us, I mean, hopefully you've done something fun, right? Have you, have you had a dip in the pool or a fancy cocktail or anything like <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, no. Isn't that a isn't that a miserable and wretched response? No. <laughs> I think there's like a 17 minute window before my last package before I have to hop on a plane. So you never know. I will try and jump in the pool. Well, make sure it's a it's an action packed 17 minutes. Yeah. It right, doesn't get... <laughs> take long to get a cocktail down. Just saying. <laughs> let's get into the substance of it. Look, prime ministers we've seen over many years go to these summits, put on the Pacific shirt, talk about resets and step ups and deeper ties and so on. This PM did seem to have more substance to back up that rhetoric, right? He had a, he had a more ambitious climate target than his predecessors, more support on foreign aid and defence training and labour programs. The big question, Stephen, to you, I guess, is where, after this summit, where is Australia left in terms of its standing in the region? Look, it's definitely in a better position than it was under the last government. There's no way around that. And I'm, I'm really glad, actually, that we've got Melissa here because you've got someone who's equally well positioned to talk about this because the last time they had a face-to-face meeting, Pacific Island leaders, that was back in 2019 at Tuvalu and Melissa was actually there. So this is this is excellent, a bit of fortuitous timing. Exactly. Some very interesting comparisons for sure. Yeah, some fascinating comparisons because as Melissa will tell you, uh, I'm sure in a second, that was an acrimonious meeting, a really, really bad-tempered one. It went late and there was a really ill-tempered extended standoff really over climate change policy and what the wording in the final communique uh, will be, and I'll let Mel go through that soon. But in contrast, this was a much more routine Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting. I mean, there were many things that weren't routine. There were many things we can get into later about the PIF splitting and about China, which were deeply contentious. But on climate policy, which remains the overriding preoccupation and focus of Pacific Island leaders, you didn't have the same bitter split between Australia and the rest. It wrapped up at 4, 4.30pm rather than 10pm. There was no excruciating, elongated ne- negotiation over what the wording should be on climate change. We believe the final communique, it's not out yet, but it's going to say something fairly laudatory or at least welcoming about Australia's uh, new climate policies and the, the push to cut emissions by 43% by 2030. 
Now, all of that said, we shouldn't pretend that Australia and the Pacific are now suddenly magically on the same page on climate policy. They're not. We saw Frank Bainimarama, for example, Fiji's Prime Minister, sending a pretty pointed tweet after he met Anthony Albanese a couple of days ago or a day ago, saying that he urged Australia's Prime Minister to introduce targets consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, that critical threshold. So there's no doubt the Pacific wants more ambition from Australia, but the gap is narrower than it was. And that means that this Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting didn't come down with that same dramatic and ill-tempered crescendo on climate in the final day. There was more common ground than there was. Well, Mel, take us back to that ill-tempered crescendo in the uh, (laughs) pre-pandemic Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu. Was it all about climate change? It was. And at the end of it all, after a leaders meeting that stretched through the afternoon and late into the night that had people in tears at various points, it left everyone with a bitter taste in their mouth for the following two years. This Pacific Islands Forum in person, and I think the fact that they've been able to gather face to face has been really significant in helping change the nature of that relationship. But absolutely, Australia having a more forward position on climate change is a marked contrast. Uh, Scott Morrison came in to the 2019 forum in Tuvalu with red lines that he was not willing to budge from. And an belligerent approach was how it was described to me by other Pacific leaders who were taking part in that meeting. Now, that hasn't been replicated this time around, and that has gone a long way. But I think Stephen is right to point out that we're not on the same page yet. It was very interesting to see Anthony Albanese uh, when he was asked about the Pacific wanting Australia to do more, wanting Australia to phase out coal and gas, uh, not allow new developments. He was very quick and very upfront to say, oh, no, no one asked me about that. I was hmm. not asked about that in that press conference. Yet what we see from Frank Barney Marama was he said he was very clear that he asked everyone he met to increase their ambition on emissions and then went on to say that most urgently it requires that countries end their fossil fuel addiction, including coal. It was direct. And I'm not sure if it was Anthony Albanese just wanting to make a strong argument in a press conference to the media by saying, I don't know, I wasn't asked about that, so let's move on to other questions. Or did he misunderstand the nature of diplomacy in the Pacific, where things aren't always tackled head on, where it's not as blunt as Australians tend to be. Pacific leaders tend to come at things in a more roundabout and gentle way. So the mere fact that someone didn't come up and point a finger in his face and say, hey, you need to uh, stop developing new coal mines or opening new gas fields doesn't mean that wasn't the desire that some of those leaders might have had to come out of those conversations. So uh, I don't know if we think that's Anthony Albanese media approach or is he actually not quite grasping the nature of diplomacy in the Pacific? Yeah, so look, on on climate change, it's clear that the Pacific would like Australia as well as the US, Europe, China and everybody else to do more to get to that, to keep warming below one and a half degrees, but welcome the improved level of ambition from Australia. When it comes to the the big question of China, one of the key moments, I suppose, over the last few days was that hug uh, between the PM and the Solomon's his Solomon's counterpart, Manasseh Sogavare, and the public commitment we saw from the Solomon's PM that there will be no Chinese military base in his country. Stephen, how significant was that? Look, 
Manasseh Sogavare has said repeatedly, both privately and publicly, that there is no way that the Chinese will be allowed to establish any sort of military base or military presence in Solomon Islands. So the fact that he said that directly to Anthony Albanese in person, whilst not insignificant, is not really surprising. This is a message that he has been sending consistently ever since news of the Solomon Islands China Security Pact broke. I think what is perhaps a little bit more interesting and significant was just how definitive Anthony Albanese was when he was asked afterwards uh, whether he believed Mr. Sokovare. So first of all, it was on Channel 9 the morning after the meeting and those pictures of the hug were still beaming around TV screens everywhere. He was asked directly, do you think there'll be a military base on Solomon Islands established by China? And he said, no. No, I do not believe that will happen. And then he followed it up with at a press conference that afternoon. When asked about Mr. Sokovare's assurance, he said he took Mr. Sokovare at face value. So that is interesting because I can tell you now, not everyone in Canberra takes Manasseh Sokovare at face value. This is not to say that Mr. Albanese might not believe it. I, I don't know whether he's saying that as a, as a tactic or whether he firmly believes that that assurance is a genuine one. But certainly people within various circles in Canberra, within bureaucracies, within Defence Department and other places are not so sanguine about this prospect. So it's interesting that Mr Albanese made that definitive statement. Like I said, maybe tactical as much as anything else. He may really believe it. It's difficult to say but it's worth noting. He gives himself very little little wriggle room now should he be proved wrong. Well, isn't the reality that whatever he says, China's ambition uh, to have a greater military presence, to have a military base even in the Pacific, is not going away. It's not going to drop this. It is desperate to be the dominant power in the region. So this is a longer-term game, really. And in that context, we saw the US Vice President Kamala Harris give a virtual address to the Pacific leaders, talking about opening new embassies and more funding. Mel, what did you make of that? And do you think Pacific leaders will be confident about the US really being interested and committed to their region, or will there be doubts? Look, it was an interesting move and it was a bit of a risky one as well. There's been some attention on the fact that the timing of it wasn't seen as particularly helpful given that this is meant to be the period that the Pacific Island Forum leaders work together and perhaps the US could have waited a little bit longer before coming into this time and space. I think that's perhaps questionable. But I think we also have to remember the priorities of the Pacific here. And I think a, a frustration we heard come out from Pacific leaders over the course of the last couple of days has been, we know Australia, US, you're all very interested in the big geostrategic plays going on in the Pacific right now, but our number one concern is climate change. And we heard this repeated over and over again from Frank Barney-Marama to Simon Coffey, the uh, foreign minister for Tuvalu, to the Cook Islands who are going to host the next PIF meeting. They were beseeching the people in the room, media included, to remind them that for all of the attention on the geostrategic attentions, their priority was climate change. So I'm sure they will welcome the extra support, the extra missions that the US have announced, that Kamala Harris announced in this uh, address, but their priority is still climate change and that will be where they are looking for mm. true evidence of solidarity. Yeah, look, one other issue before we leave the Pacific, a question that kept coming up, it struck me watching some of the press conferences there, Stephen, was from the local journos, the Pacific uh, journos, was about 
work rights and labour mobility issues. I was speaking to Professor Hugh White on Q&A this week, and as you'd know, he's written a quarterly essay called Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with the US. Very pessimistic about the US sticking around in the region, very confident about China being the dominant power and and very critical of Australia for how it's handling all of this. One of the points he raised in the program, though, was, look, if, if we really are the Pacific family that we keep saying we are, why don't we give Pacific Islanders the same work and travel rights as we give to New Zealanders? Stephen, give us the perspective on the ground there of how this issue is seen about work rights and travel rights in Australia. Oh, look, it's a big one. And it's a big one for several reasons. The first reason is that some of some Pacific Island countries, not not all of them, of course, but some Pacific Island countries are, are really desperate for work. They've got huge youth bulges. They've got growing populations. And in places like Solomon Islands, there simply isn't enough work to go around. There just, there just aren't enough jobs. When you think about the riots that rocked Honiara in November last year, well, it was a few different disputes, but, but one of them was a, was a provincial dispute, a dispute between the provincial government and the central government unhappiness about the switch from Taiwan to China. But what really exploded wasn't so much a political sense of rage, but a sense of fury at the lack of economic opportunities that were there. That's the evidence that we're getting time and time again when we talk to people on the ground. People were opportunistic. Yes, people were criminal. Yes, but it was driven largely by people without a job and without any economic prospects. Over the long term, this presents huge problems to Pacific Island nations. And what Australia has to offer is, of course, a country, a market, which is hungry for labour, hungry for jobs. Especially this week with the figures we've had uh, just yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what Australia's been doing to sort of uh, to take advantage of this and to both for our own economic interests, but also as a diplomatic tool, is it's basically introduced a series of temporary work schemes which are designed to allow Pacific Island nationals to come into Australia to work temporarily. This was originally largely in the agriculture sector, the meatwork sector. It's now being expanded to other sectors, including aged care. This morning, Anthony Albanese actually visited a training centre where we saw nursing students who are going to come to Australia to work in the aged care sector in an attempt to try and offer them economic opportunities. But you're absolutely right. In the long run, The question is, do we need to go further? Because what really rubs at Pacific Island nations, and particularly, you'd have to say, elites in these countries, is the fact that there is this double standard, that people from New Zealand can move freely into Australia and work here, whereas the vast bulk of people in the Pacific cannot. They instead have to come in on these temporary schemes. Now, there has been talk in Canberra for years about the prospect of some sort of grand bargain with Pacific Island countries. Kevin Rudd, for example, has suggested that perhaps Australia should look at basically identifying four or five smaller Pacific Island states with very small populations, offering them essentially citizenship or work rights in Australia in return for handing over their EECs, their exclusive economic zones. That is a sensitive and controversial proposal in the Pacific because it requires nations potentially to sacrifice their sovereignty or parts of their sovereignty to Australia. But as climate change continues to ravage the Pacific, potentially making more of these countries either difficult to inhabit or genuinely uninhabitable, as strategic competition intensifies and Australia becomes increasingly anxious about Chinese influence in these countries, you do wonder whether policymakers now or in the future might look at that prospect again or might look at just relaxing work and travel rules for Pacific Islanders 
more broadly in order to tie them and their countries more tightly to Australia? I think all of these questions are absolutely on the table. Let's move to a couple of other issues. The pressure the PM is facing back here over the growing COVID case numbers. We've got a question from Ian who asks, to encourage people to get their third vaccine dose, he says, unfortunately, called the booster, implying it's a bit optional, why not declare that you are not considered fully vaccinated until you've had three doses? Ian says his digital vaccine certificate says, I was fully vaxxed after the second dose. And that's pretty standard, Mel. What do you think? It's not a bad point, but any sort yeah. of vaccine mandates appear to be, you know, things of the past, don't they? That's just it. I mean, we had earlier this year, Atagi decided that it didn't want to use the language fully vaccinated. It uses the phrase up to date. So that's why you won't see the third dose being referred to as being fully vaccinated. They will say that get your third dose to be up to date. So, I mean, in in some ways to Ian's question, yes, three doses is the full course and you're not fully vaccinated as we used to understand it. So the question is, why not advertise it that way, promote it that way, put it on the digital certificate? And I think that's because, as you say, David, it reflects that governments are moving away from the idea of mandates, that you have Mm. to have this. We're not getting restrictions on what you can do with the exception of a a few notable industry mandatory vaccination It's all shifting around right now, actually, in terms of who should and shouldn't be required to have a mandate. They're changing the rules in education and food distribution and seafood processing and some of these things still have to have... Different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And you're seeing voluntary policies adopted by some organisations I think a a good high-profile example of that is the AFL, you know, has gone from mandating you needed to have be fully vaccinated and and now you don't uh, for the next season. So this is very much in flux. It's different depending where you are, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And I think also adding to the confusion here is the different advice for which people should have how many doses to be best protected. Mm. For the vast bulk of people, that's three and a fourth is optional. For some young children, it's still, the advice is still two. If you're older or immune suppressed, it's it's the four. Um, yeah, over 50 or, recommended to get the four. Exactly. Um, so it's not a clear No, and you've got to keep up anymore. you've got to keep up with the changing <laughs> rules. Um, I, I guess it also raises the question in my mind, what's the point of the vaccine certificate? I mean I, I know in some of these w- workplaces we've discussed the you do need it. And Stephen, I'd, I'd like to ask how you've gone with your international travels because as of I think it's a week ago, international travelers no longer need to prove their vaccination status to get into Australia. Qantas is dropping its vaccine requirement from next week, I think it is. So have you had to flash your vaccine certificate around there? Yeah, yeah. To get into Fiji, you still have to show you're fully vaccinated to get on the plane. And on top of that, you have to do a rat test when you arrive in country. I mean, it's fair. Look, it's honestly, it's fairly relaxed. It's within 72 hours. And I'm not sure how strictly it's enforced. I've heard some people just uh, mentioning here that they haven't got it done yet. So, you know, there is a system in place, but I'm not sure it's rigorously enforced. Um, it, it doesn't feel normal, at least for me yet, travelling internationally, but it certainly feels much more normal uh, than it did a few months ago. And you do get the sense that at least in Fiji, the restrictions are probably only going to go in one direction. They're probably going to continue to ease. And that's largely because it still remains very dependent on tourism. 
And Fiji has a tricky balancing act here. It obviously wants people to come and visit, doesn't want visitors to contribute to any future outbreaks. Subvariants make that balancing act even more tricky. But you, you certainly don't get the sense that Fiji is going to do anything soon to make it harder for tourists to come here. The bigger political challenge when it comes to COVID, though, Mel, right now, as we know, is this pandemic leave payment issue and the free rats that are going to end at the end of the month for pensioners, concession card holders. But the pandemic leave has already come to an end. And the PM and the health minister and others seem to be digging in on this. A little bit of wiggle room in the language we've heard from Anthony Albanese before leaving Fiji talked about you know considering these things, but but still defending the fact they can't afford it. He says we inherited this time frame of phasing out these supports, and and that's that. But boy, this week it's just the, the heat's going, getting higher and higher and hotter <laughs> Look, and hotter you, from all you, corners on the government. You, you say there's wiggle room in his latest statement, but I think we've had so many different rationales and explanations from the government as to why it won't do this. Is it because they just haven't got the money? It's regrettable, but we just haven't got the money. We we can't afford it. Is it because, oh, no, it's the previous government's fault because they put an end date on it and sorry about that. It's They set the date and we're just abiding by it. I mean, that's one of the arguments we've heard. We heard another minister say, well, look, we're sort of moving from the pandemic to an endemic stage and things are changing and we've got to look at it differently. Well, the PM even said this morning good employers are providing the the sick leave. So maybe having a dig at employers who aren't. But the reality is you're still required to isolate if you've got COVID, right? So surely whatever you're required by law to isolate, you should, if you don't have sick leave, be compensated. This is the sharpest point, I think, that the federal government has not been able to address. It is one thing to say this isn't our funding priority. It's one thing to say people need to put in place their own practices around social distancing or hygiene or making their own calls about their risk appetite. But if you have a compulsion upon people, a legal compulsion to isolate, and people don't have access to sick leave or the means to support themselves, then there is an obligation on government to provide that support. I think it's interesting that we've seen the state leaders really start to pile on the pressure here. Mm -hmm. Some of the immediate response from the federal level has been, well, your budgets are looking a bit healthier than ours. So I wonder if when we have... Who used to uh, run that argument? It seems to ring a bell, doesn't it? Very familiar, very familiar. (laughs) So when we have this National Cabinet meeting on Monday and the state premiers are there, I'm sure whatever resolution they might try and discuss, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some cost sharing involved. Yeah, they've been cost sharing on different payments through COVID. This pandemic leave payment that just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, this was funded by the Commonwealth, but maybe you're right. Maybe they asked the states to chip in to put something similar or, or something more modest in place. We will see. But it's the first real political pressure point for Anthony Albanese since becoming Prime Minister. And it's fascinating to see you know, whether he, he continues to fight on this hill and tough out the, the pressure that he's under or does find a way through and capitulate. There is, as I understand it, a, a meeting of the um, Expenditure Review Committee, the, the Budget Raiser Gang, uh, on, on Monday, as well as that National Cabinet meeting. So maybe uh, they, they look at what they can do or can't do with the budget settings. It'll be interesting. And I think it's also interesting that they are coming into this new role, new government, Parliament hasn't even sat yet, looking at their first budget at a time of a really significant social shift, I think, of where we are in the pandemic. And that timing is going to make it particularly difficult for the federal government to navigate. Yeah, and especially if those case numbers continue to rise. Mm. And in fact, this outbreak is worse than we're being told it's going to be. That'll be dangerous. 
ground for the government. Look, final question from Jessica, who's asking about the return of Parliament. It's now, well, just over a week away. Jessica asks, who are expected to become the Speaker of the House or the President of the Senate? She's got another question too about what the first day of Parliament will look like in terms of procedure. But just on the presiding officers, Mel, what's your mail on uh, on those two plum posts? Yes, this hasn't been officially sorted uh, and there was a lot of speculation straight after the election, particularly with so many independents in the House of Representatives about whether or not the federal government might want to look at putting an independent into the Speaker's chair and certainly Andrew Wilkie was someone who was interested if that offer was on the table. But once the Labor Party got a sufficient number of seats that it would have a majority in the outright, they have made the decision that they want to be able to control the chamber and they will appoint a Labor speaker and they will appoint Milton Dick, who is a Queensland MP. And uh, this will be a result of a bit of factional negotiations here because we know some others had their eyes on it, including previous deputies like Rob Mitchell who certainly would have wanted the role. But uh, in terms of coming to government and allocating senior roles, be they ministerial positions, committee positions, and very lucrative ones like the Speaker, which comes with a a lot of perks and prestige, there's always a lot of negotiations around this. So we're hearing that it'll be Milton Dick who will be the Speaker. Similar arrangement in the Senate, uh, hearing that Sue Lyons, a West Australian senator, will be the new president of the Senate. So unless there's some unexpected changes in the next uh, little week or so, that should be the uh, two new presiding officers to try to bring order to the chambers. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see a newbie in the Speaker's chair in Milton Dick and how he handles you know, the inevitable pressure that's brought to bear on any new speaker, but particularly in a new parliament, right? And it'll be fascinating to see how Peter Dutton and members of the opposition, how hard they go, uh, whether Anthony Albanese and the Labor team can pull off this, you know, kind of gentler new vibe in parliament that they're hoping will result from, uh, from this <laughs> I'm election. I'm very cynical on this front. Uh, Look, yeah. it, it's going to be a hard ask for Milton Dick. I mean, we, we got a little taste of, of how it is for a new speaker when Andrew Wallace took the speaker's chair after yeah. Tony Smith announced that he, he would struggles. be stepping down and he struggled. It's not an easy job. That's no sort of personal criticism. Well, particularly him, following Tony Smith, right? Who yes. Pretty yeah. much the gold standard. So it's going to be a hard task. The coalition are going to go hard. There is no doubt about it. They have no interest in a, a kinder, gentler politics uh, when you come into the start a term in opposition. So they will push for all they can. And Peter Dutton is certainly uh, savvy in terms of managing opposition business in the House. He will be formidable. Labor will also have to make some really crucial decisions about how much time and space it gives the crossbench. They will likely get more questions in question time. At the moment, only one crossbencher gets a question per question time session. That will have to increase. But they're also pushing for more what's called private members business. So this is time for them to put forward bills to the House, to have them debated. At the moment, that's limited to a a couple of hours on one day in a sitting week. They will be pushing for more time to that. I'm really interested to see if Labor is going to allow that because I think that will give us a very good sense of how much rope they want to give the independents or whether they want to try and keep them as contained as possible. Stephen, just before we wrap it, I mean, you're a man of fairness and equity. With with the new parliament that's been elected, should the crossbench get more than one 
question a day. They've a hell of a lot more of them there now. Should the uh, coalition get fewer? Yeah, no, I, I think the crossbench is entirely entitled to, to more questions. I mean, the long-term trends in Australian politics at the moment look pretty clear. Both of you are much closer watchers of, of this stuff than I am, but it seems very difficult to argue. You know, the trend is, is away from the major parties at the moment and the, the vote for third parties or independents just continues to grow. So I think the system simply has to be able to accommodate that and find ways to respect that and allow those people who are sent to Canberra, independents or major party members, to have a representative sort of say within the framework of the parliament. So to me, just personally speaking, it seems logical that uh, more questions should be allocated. It's going to be fun to watch. I am conscious that we may be eating into your 17 minutes of fun there in Fiji, Stephen. going to jealously I, guard. I don't want to disrupt any of that. Look, thank you both very much for joining us, Stephen Jedgetts and uh, Mel Clark. Great to catch up. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to our producers, Yasmin Parry and David Lawford, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please keep sending us your questions. You can submit them by the ABC Listen app or on an email it's a back to you podcast at abc.net.au we'll be back in your feed next friday you've been listening to an abc podcast discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives on the abc listen app